Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Pamela Weibel, MD, who is author of Pet Goats and Pap Smears. Today we will discuss ideal medical care. Pamela is a family physician born into a family of physicians. Her parents warned her not to pursue medicine. She followed her heart only to discover that to heal her patients, she had to first heal her profession. So she led a series of town hall meetings inviting citizens to design the clinic of their dreams. Celebrated since 2005, her pioneering model has sparked a populist movement that has inspired Americans to create ideal clinics and hospitals nationwide. Dr. Weibel is author of Pet Goats and Pap Smears, 101 Medical Adventures to Open Your Heart and Mind. She is also co-author of two award-winning anthologies, God is Gift, Women Leading for a Change with Michelle Obama and Oprah Winfrey, and Optimism, Cultivating the Magic Quality that Can Extend Your Lifespan, Boost Your Energy, and Make You Happy Now with Jimmy Carter, Steve Jobs, and others. Her model is featured in the Harvard School of Public Health's newest edition of Renegotiating Healthcare, Resolving Conflict to Build Collaboration a textbook examining major trends with the potential to change the dynamics of healthcare. Pamela is a graduate of Wellesley College, University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston, and the University of Arizona's Department of Family and Community Medicine. Pamela, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is a topic that is so relevant today with so many boomers aging into their boomer years and with so many changes taking place at the national level, the economic crisis, the health care initiatives that are changing the landscape of the country, help us gain an understanding of what we're talking about at the national level. There is a shortage of physicians in general, and I think right now the latest population numbers I saw were about 312 million people in the United States. Would you help us see how that relates to the physician population in terms of numbers and where they're located and so forth? Well, the number of physicians in active patient care in the United States is about 750,000. And many of these physicians are considering early retirement and leaving the medical profession because of burnout, depression, and and even suicide. So the problem is that the physicians themselves are unhappy, and many of your listeners might recognize that from any recent visits with physicians. Sometimes they look distracted and like they're maybe not having that much fun at work and possibly not as attentive as you would like your physician to be because the numbers of patients coming through are increasing and the numbers of physicians are decreasing, that's where the real problem is. And the American Medical Association estimates approximately 200,000 physician deficit by the year 2020. That's That's a big problem. That's very high, right? Mm -hmm. That is very high. And there is a particular shortage of physicians in rural areas as opposed to urban centers. Is that right? And that's true as well. Rural and primary care are actually hit the hardest. In fact, a recent survey of fourth-year medical students revealed that only 2% of medical students want to go into general internal medicine. And these are the doctors that are taking care of the geriatric population and taking care of just the needs of, uh, you know, an average town of people who would be looking for a doctor. So, yeah, many doctors are just going into specialties. Is this a financially driven decision? I think really where the decision comes from as far as a career, it's in part financial, but primarily it is because of in medical school, we are exposed to um, a limited number of physicians. And primarily in medical schools, if you look at where medical schools are, they're considered tertiary care centers, meaning that's where you go for lung transplants and bone marrow transplants and, you know, lots of serious high-tech medicine. So in medical school training, medical students are not as exposed to the old-time country rural family doctor. 
You see what I'm saying? And so if you're not exposed to something, it's hard to emulate that. And additionally, the problem is that the doctors that these young medical students are exposed to, many of them are cynical, jaded, depressed, and burned out. So you have kind of the teaching force of uh, physicians who are not necessarily instilling that joy and love of medicine and love of humanity into the next generation of doctors. So two critical problems there. So the role models that they're seeing when they're learning medicine are driving their choice of medical practice and they're also affecting their attitudes about medical yes. practice. Affecting their morale and affecting their choice. And also there is this, um, this situation in which primary care is sometimes seen as the specialty to go into if you're maybe not that smart. You know, the smart people want to be surgeons or ophthalmologists or something like that. And that's just more of a cultural thing because, honestly, you are responsible for more material as a generalist physician. It's kind of like a veterinarian. You do every animal and every specialty. You have to be pretty smart to be a veterinarian, whereas, you know, if you were a specialist like an ophthalmologist, you only have to know the eye. You know, it's a very limited area. So I think some people like specialties because they can get twice or three times as much pay and they're only supposed to know a very narrow area. Well, yeah. Fewer hours and more money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, and less responsibility for the body. You know, and honestly, what's really funny, and I'll bring this up because of the Pet Goats and Pap Smears book, I had asked several doctors around the country, I mean, I think I have about 60 who've endorsed it in the first few pages of the book, so I had asked a number of physicians to preview the book and do an endorsement, and one, one or two physicians would not endorse the book, and I found this so fascinating. One uh, particular physician who is a specialist would not endorse the book because the subject matter made him uncomfortable because, yes, I'm talking about human genitalia. People come in with questions about their bodies, right? So I'm talking about penises, vaginas, chlamydia, you know, topics that are real topics that real people experience. And he was uncomfortable with that because he said as a... uh, as a pediatric ear, nose, and throat doctor, the wildest thing he ever discusses with patients is boogers. And so to have to really get into the social dimension of, of his patients' lives or, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, that's something that, in a way, if you go into a specialty, you're shielded from having to deal with people's, you know, real gritty life problems. Interesting, right? Very. Mm -hmm. One of the thoughts that comes to my mind is that there is also a shortage of women physicians. Is that right? Well, the medical students currently coming into schools are about 50-50 split, male-female. But because this is a patriarchal reductionist medical model that we inherited, at least, you know, that I inherited, and uh, that was 20 years ago when I graduated medical school, since then, because of the infusion of more females into the profession, the current numbers are 67% of doctors are male and 33% are female. But what's interesting is 70% of all office visits are women. So it's a women are generally coming in for care and often women do want female doctors. So what happens is that 33% of women really fill up quick, you know, their patient panels. So it it is um we do need more female doctors and we need more doctors who are, you know, of various racial and ethnic backgrounds to match the needs of the population as well. And there are also fewer women in specialty areas, is that right? Yes, most women seem to prefer primary care and, you know, women value generally relationships and uh, these are the relationships that you can develop when you have taken care of a patient over 20, 30 years as their primary care doctor. Specialists and surgeons often, you know, they have patients, you know, temporarily for surgery and they never see them again, for example. And so it's generally less fulfilling for women who are in specialties unless they're very procedure-oriented, and some women are. 
What would you say in terms of the challenges beyond the the numbers that these physicians are facing? I mean, at the end of the day, a medical practice, for all intents and purposes, is a business. Patients want to think of their personal needs and their health care needs when they go to a physician but when you look at it objectively a medical practice is a for-profit business and doctors are generally in the business of making money yes they are in the business of making money and they do need to sustain themselves like anyone in any other profession the problem is that these government programs like Medicare and Medicaid pay so little to doctors that you actually I think it's um, 36% of doctors lose money every time they see a Medicare patient. You know, you're not reimbursed enough to even cover your staff or your light bills and, you know, the building expense and all of that. So if you were to primarily have a business that was uh, caring for people on these uh, government programs, and Medicaid's even worse, I think it's something like 63% of all physicians who see Medicaid patients lose money every time they see a patient. And in California, I think they reimburse about $11 for a Medi-Cal patient. And these patients are complicated. They have big social problems and psychological issues and, you know, poverty and, you know, issues that need to be dealt with that are outside of the medical realm that have real effects on their physical health. So that is the problem is that medicine is um, underfunded, especially primary care by the government, and that may not improve. So I, I think that's that's a big issue, where especially with, as people, more and more people are going to be infused, you know, with uh, having insurance, they're going to be kind of funneled into the healthcare system who maybe have not had a primary care doctor in the past and relied on the emergency room for their care. Now, part of the shocking side of this is that while there are physicians who are struggling because of these reimbursement numbers that you just shared with us and the situation overall. Healthcare as a business is booming and there are hospitals and intermediaries and healthcare insurance companies that are making money. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, there are a lot of third parties who started to insert themselves in between the patient and the physician. If you think before 1965 when Medicare started, the relationship was primarily just the patient and the physician, and maybe there was, you know, a staff member, a secretary, or, or, or a nurse. But in, essentially, it was just a two-person relationship, and that was the foundation of healthcare. Since 1965, which is when Medicare started, more and more third parties have inserted themselves between the patient and the physician. And the way to look at this, um, I would say two, uh, two analogies here. The first one is, uh, and the basic one, is that the patient-physician relationship is where the healing takes place. And you need to know the patient well, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, to give them a proper treatment plan that is culturally um, in alignment with their values. And in order to do that well, you need to have uninterrupted time with them. And what happens now in this patient-physician relationship, I would, um, I would compare it to a marriage because it is very sacred. And a lot of times, actually, people are telling things to their doctor that they've never shared with anyone in their life, including their spouse. So you're getting very intimate with this person who is your physician. And what happens is that all these third parties are in the room and comparing it to a marriage, it would be kind of like going into the bedroom at night with your husband or wife and wondering what your CPA is doing in bed with you and your um, the coder and the biller and the administrator and they're all in your bedroom. And they're not only in your bedroom taking up emotional and psychological space, but they're taking a huge cut of the money. And that's why physicians don't have enough money per patient from these government programs in part is because um, all these other people want to get paid, you know, all the other people that have inserted themselves into the room. Well, it's interesting that you say that because a couple of thoughts came to mind when, when you talked about all these other people that are now part of that relationship is that one of the sources for ID theft 
at the national level, one of the places where ID theft is committed is in healthcare facilities and doctor's offices. And the other thing that came to mind was that at times, certainly when there's an insurance company involved, there are these medical codes and these decisions being made where the patient is told what to do as, but they're being treated sort of as a commodity that the uh, the physician's office can move from place to place or send to have an exam done without explaining to them what costs are involved and what is covered by the insurance company, without revealing what the insurance codes are, even though these expenses are going to come out of their own pocket. How has this happened? How can we How can we fix that? Well, the ID theft is a big problem because, honestly, you're giving uh, things such as your Social Security number and all your uh, personal information to to your doctor's office. And so, yeah, that's definitely right for, uh, for ID theft. And uh, as far as solving that, I would say it's kind of like too many cooks in the kitchen. You know, if you're trying to make a pot of lentil soup and you've got one or two people, it could probably work out pretty well. But if you've got 27 people in your kitchen, it might not turn out right, you know. There might be some problems. There might be arguments. Um, Yeah, so we have too many people involved in the provision of health care. And a lot of these people are what I would call no-value-added intermediaries. And there's a term called disintermediation. Are you familiar with that? No. Disintermediation is one of my favorite terms. I learned this from a book on self-publishing. And disintermediation in, in that venue was specifically about disintermediating, removing the middleman is what that means. So removing the middleman in publishing means that, you know, you can self-publish. And so you go, you know, authors have direct relationships with their readers, for example, and they don't have to get permission from somebody in a big skyscraper in New York City, you know, to have a stamp of approval to uh, publish their their book because they know their market and they know their reader and they're delivering, you know, maybe some niche material that really works for their reader that maybe uh, a generic publisher wouldn't really understand. So if you use this disintermediation, disintermediation term to apply uh, to the business of healthcare, you realize, wow, there's a lot of no-value-added intermediaries in healthcare who could be removed, and that would actually safeguard the patient and help the physician provide better care for the patient. And so I'm a perfect example of that, in that and we can maybe discuss this later, is that I I opened this clinic in Eugene, and it was created by the citizens of my community. So I did not hold them hostage to what I call assembly line medicine, which is the dominant form of healthcare today, where people all kind of line up and get funneled onto an assembly line as patients, and the doctors are funneled onto the other side as physicians, and everyone's moving fast, and at a pace that is unfulfilling and possibly very dangerous for the physician and the patient. And the reason why they're moving at that speed is because these third parties are making so much money from that volume and that speed. And what I did when I asked a community to come together in town hall meetings and design their own clinic is I, I asked them, you know, what would be your ideal? What, what could I do? How could I be the doctor of your dreams? What would be your ideal clinic? I got 100 pages of testimony, adopted 90%, and we were open one month later. And what people had asked for is remove all these middlemen. They do not want, they, you know, they don't want all these people present. They want to come to see their doctor, and they want it to feel like they're maybe in a small, cozy living room with a friend who happens to be their doctor. That's kind of the ambiance they were looking for. And so I was able to recreate that. I don't have any staff. I don't have front office, back office. My patients can call me directly on my cell phone. So as far as identity theft, it is literally impossible in my practice to have identity theft because I'm the only one there besides the patient. And everything's on my laptop, which I keep with me guarded (laughs) all the time. And there's no other equipment with their information, you know, wandering out of the office with anyone else because I have no employees. So that's an example of a disintermediated medical clinic which would secure patient identification. And I plus 
have stopped asking for social security numbers. I don't ask for information that I don't need for my patients. So they would not have identity theft in that manner. Now, the other issue you brought up is the cost issue and what to do with um, all these codes and insurance companies and the lack of transparency and not knowing what the bill is going to be. And, yeah, they've made this unnecessarily complex. And I always like to say criminals hide behind complexity. So this is how people are running off with the money, is they're making this so complicated that the average person doesn't understand what's going on until they get their $50,000 hospital bill. And how we can change this, again, is by decreasing or limiting the number of third parties involved and making the billing just more straightforward. So, for example, with my uninsured patients, I can tell them ahead of time what their bill will be for their visit. And I actually print out my prices so people know in advance, even with insurance, what kind of the range will be. It's impossible to say the exact price because you don't know how many by the ways the, the patient is going to have. You know, sometimes they say they're coming for one thing and then by the way, I'm suicidal and by the way... I have these other, I had chest pain last week. And so once you get all the by the ways in and you handle them in a, in a, in a manner deserving for the problem, you know, the price might go up because the complexity of their appointment went up. <laughs> so sometimes it's actual patient denial that causes some of these billing issues because the patient is unwilling to really come forward with the real reason they're at the appointment. <laughs> And um, I think this could be fixed by demanding, by patients demanding to get the, the, the fees from their doctor, especially an outpatient medical appointment. You should be able to ask your dermatologist or your family physician for the basic fee structure. That brings me to something that seems to me is also fallen by the wayside. You said a couple of things that, that made me think of that. And it's the concept that the responsibility for a patient's care lies with the patient. The patient goes to the doctor to consult, but ultimately, isn't it the patient's responsibility to be aware, to look after their own needs, and to seek the care that they need from the right person? It is. The patient actually should see health care not as a passive process, which in a way... Sorry to say again, these government programs that cover kind of everything for, let's just say, Medicaid patients, people who are not paying their own money for their care or they're using taxpayer money for their care, they actually tend to have a more passive approach to health care. They show up in sort of a, I guess, with a, an attitude that they deserve whatever services and they don't have to put any personal effort into it. So that's the beauty of having a system that's transparent where everyone is at least paying some of their own way is that you are taking that responsibility for your health, you're paying for your health care, you are seeing the doctor as a consultant, as somebody who, you know, if their opinion does not resonate with you, you can say thank you for your opinion and seek help elsewhere. You are not committed to following what any one doctor says, and it is a service. You're hiring them as somebody who hopefully has more medical knowledge than you for an opinion, and, um, and hopefully you're getting a good one. <laughs> and, and that's a challenging concept because a lot of the times the patients don't want to know. I remember talking to a physician and asking questions, and he looked at me sort of dumbfounded and said, nobody ever wants to know. I was asking very specific questions about what he was doing and I wanted to see, et cetera, et cetera. And he was said, nobody ever wants to know. Nobody has ever asked me the questions that you're asking me and nobody ever wants to see it. They just want to... The reason why that is, is I think some people have more competence than other people generally, and you're probably one of those people who's a very competent person and likes to understand the details of life. And so you would be somebody who's prepared for a medical visit and asking very appropriate, inquisitive questions, which actually would be a thrill for a doctor who's bored doing the same thing over and over again to have somebody who actually takes an active interest. I mean, it's very stimulating to be asked questions. That's why it's so wonderful to have a medical student by your side. They're constantly asking you why you're doing something, and it makes your brain work in new ways. Um, and then the other 
other reason why maybe some doctors are not familiar with uh, these types of patients and these questions is because traditionally we've had a very patriarchal reductionist medical model where the hierarchy builds in this dependency of the patient upon the physician who is more like on a pedestal, right? And so you go to see them traditionally, you know, 30, maybe 50 years ago, and of course you don't question the doctor. You do whatever they say. They tell you to take a pill. They pat you on the back. You, you know, you leave and you're thankful that you got there, you know, two or three minutes, Um although back then you probably got more time, but still there wasn't this questioning. Now what we're doing is moving from a patriarchal reductionist model to more of a partnership model where one doctor has quoted uh, saying, and this is a quote that he got from another source, but doctors used to be a sage on the stage and now they're a guide on the side. So when you have a partnership model, that puts both people at an equal level where questions are welcomed and more of a back-and-forth conversation is seen as normal instead of, um, you know, being defensive or, um, or questioning the, the, the physician's judgment. You're more curious and just wanting to have your questions answered appropriately. So, and this uh, partnership model that we're moving towards is also more holistic so that instead of a reductionist method, which is, you know, looking at you for just your kidney or just your heart, you know, what patients really want is to be looked at as an entire organism, a real person who has a heart and a soul and a family and a sex life and all of that, a total person. There is talk of loss of trust in physicians increasingly as it becomes evident that many physicians are receiving compensation for their consulting work for large companies and pharmaceuticals that they are sometimes prescribing medications that are unnecessary or unproven or unapproved for a particular use because they are receiving large amounts of money or sometimes physicians who are selling things in their own practice products with their label or third-party products with a markup what would you say about those issues? Oh, I find that very disturbing. I mean, the first issue is basically bribery, you know. They're being paid lump sums far in excess of what they deserve for whatever services they may have provided, you know, speaking fees or whatever for these pharmaceutical companies. And and the second one is just a conflict of interest. If you're selling items from your office, especially marked up, then, um, you know, at, at, at hundreds of percent above what the what – the, uh, ingredients would cost somebody, you know, from another source, then I just feel like in that case, doctors have lost lost track of their, uh, have been misaligned with their, their original vision, which originally I think many doctors went into this for humanitarian reasons. And what happened, what tends to happen is during medical school, we are dehumanized. It's a process that just happens, and unfortunately, a result of being dehumanized is that one loses connection with their heart and soul. When you lose connection with your own heart and soul, you are less able to connect with your patients at their heart and soul, and then as a compensatory measure, because let's face it, when you lose connection with your heart and soul, you lose meaning in your life, so if you lose meaning in your life, you're more easily swayed to take bribes and do all sorts of things that would not be your natural ethical behavior because essentially you're out of balance with yourself and with your profession. So unfortunately, you have doctors doing things that are not very doctorly and not in their patient's best interest and not in their best interest long term. There seems to be a tendency on the part of patients and on the part of physicians to solve issues through a million diagnostic procedures and finish everything with a prescription. Do you think that's related to this loss of connection that you were talking about where you've lost your connection with your heart and soul with the reason that you started out doing this as a career choice? 
Yeah, definitely. It's related to a loss of connection with self and loss of connection with patient. And this is overall under the uh, category of just a loss of humanity, meaning I find that a lot of people, even patients, because of our fast-paced society, we rely on gadgets a lot more, you know, and these gadgets can do 12 things at once, and isn't that amazing? But in the meantime, we've forgotten how to be human. So I think the fast pace of our world, which is frankly inhumane, has caused people to move at such a speed that we've forgotten how to connect with each other, heart to heart and soul to soul. And... Um, and there's actually another piece I wanted to add with, oh, the technology, the reliance on technology and lab tests and pharmaceuticals is a direct result of that loss of a relationship because we have known in medicine for over 100 years that, uh, in fact, William Osler, who's considered the father of medicine, instilled this in his students, and it's been quoted over and over again, that the, um, I think it's 85% of diagnoses can be made just by listening to the patient. So if we actually, you know, create the time and space for a relationship to develop, we don't need lab tests and all these high-tech uh, services because we know the diagnosis. And then furthermore, if you, if you listen to the patient long enough, the patient will tell you what to do, meaning you could diagnose and treat a patient all without reliance on high-tech and high-priced equipment and services. Is this also behind the chronic weight in healthcare facilities and doctors' offices, it's become so that you enter into the doctor's domain and you wait in the waiting area with a bunch of other people and then you go inside and they put you in a room and you wait because the doctor has scheduled maybe a half a dozen other people at the same time. Is this part of this loss of contact with your heart and soul, with your humanity that you're talking about? What's driving this? What's driving the volume of patients is that many clinics are high overhead clinics, meaning every doctor has like 13 staff running around from the you know front desk and the multiple phone lines to the back office staff and the billers and the coders, and all of these people have become somewhat necessary because of the complexity of the regulation that has been thrown on top of the patient and physician by all these third parties. And so these third parties have created all these new job opportunities for people that unfortunately have cut into the time that a patient and physician can spend together because, you know, let's face it, you've got to move fast enough to pay 13 other people's salaries and your own. And so many medical clinics function with an overhead at my favorite factory job. It was 80, it was uh, 80, let's see, 80, it was 70. 4%. I know of another clinic, a patient, uh, a physician friend of mine worked where I used to work and the overhead was 84%, meaning if you saw a patient for pneumonia, for example, and you got paid $100, you would only keep, you know, in my 74% practice, you'd keep $26, uh, which is really not much to make for treating somebody, and that's before taxes. And um, so what happens is that in order to, for the doctor to make any money, uh, you have to see more than 22 patients out of, uh, you know, a day. So you get pretty tired at the, at the point where you've seen 22 patients because let's think about each patient comes in and has three to five complaints. It's not usually just something simple. You know, they want to talk about their ankle and their chest pain and their marriage and a variety of things. And by the time you deal with all that, you're exhausted and uh, I like to give this example so that patients understand what it's like for a physician. And physicians are generally pretty obsessive, compulsive, perfectionist uh, type people. And they want to do a good job for their patients. And they want to feel like they've done a good job at the end of the day. But what it feels like when you have 30 patients per day coming through, it's like somebody hands you at the beginning of the day 30 novels. And they're really great novels. And you can only make it through one or one and a half chapters of each one before it's ripped out of your hand and you're sent into another room with another novel. Again, ripped out of your hand after five minutes when you're just getting into the first chapter. It's a very unfulfilling type of process for the doctor. 
but it's all fueled by high overhead. And, you know, what's funny is that I used to work in a clinic in Olympia, Washington, and during uh, during an uh, actual pap smear I was performing, there was an earthquake. And so we all had to run out of the building. And I was running down the hallway, and there were, like, three naked people ahead of me. And I realized, wow, they were all waiting for me in different rooms at the same time. And I think it's a little insane, no matter what your profession is, to have um, – three naked people waiting for you at the same time. <laughs> it really puts things into perspective, right? Yeah, it does. I, I mean, right then and there, I was like, i got to get out of here. This is ridiculous. You know, forget the earthquake. This, I mean, my life, I cannot, I cannot treat people this way, and I cannot treat myself this way. You know? I can't do a good job knowing that three naked people are waiting for me at once. Of course, this goes back to what you were talking about when we first started the conversation and you were saying how there are so many physicians who are burnt out and depressed and even committing suicide because how could they possibly be relaxed and be at their best when they're under this pressure cooker of of an environment? Mm -hmm. And these are not low achievers. These are people who value perfection. To take somebody who values perfection and put them in an imperfect healthcare system and tell them to work in it is really a destroyer of the person, you know? You, you can't be your normal perfectionist self in an imperfect healthcare system. So you basically get used to working in a substandard way. And I think you just additionally lose more. I mean, you graduate from medical school with PTSD from a majority of medical students, I would think. And then you lose touch with your heart and soul, but you're still somewhat of a perfectionist because at least you have to feel good about something. And now they take that away from you. You can't even do well by your patients because you can't get enough time to spend with them. It really is a complete, it just undermines a physician's entire identity in their life. And physician, to be a physician, this isn't just, you know, a car repairman or somebody who works at a gas station. This is an actual calling, a spiritual calling. You don't go through, like what I went through, 24 years of education straight through since kindergarten and all the debt that comes along with that and delayed gratification. You don't just do that like, just for fun. You're doing this because it's a calling. This is a deep spiritual calling that drives you to enter this field and to have it completely taken away from underneath you and and have your identity destroyed at the same time is just sick. And this is how so many physicians get lost along the way and derailed toward the profit side of things and accepting consulting fees, maybe even denying to themselves that what they're doing is unethical. Right, because physicians have trouble, um, you know, coming clean with the idea that they could be weak or they could be harmed or they could be less than perfect. And so they want to maintain that sort of, um, that aura of, um, of healer and and maybe like in the control we're a little bit of control freaks <laughs> and they, you want to maintain that and not admit your weakness and vulnerability i mean women have an easier time admitting their vulnerability in general but i think for especially male doctors and the majority of suicides are male doctors in fact all the suicides i know about in physicians are male doctors and these are people who have trouble admitting vulnerability and weakness you know, it's not very male, even to ask for directions when you're lost in a car, right? <laughs> um, just think about how hard it would be as a doctor to ask for help as a male doctor. You know, I mean, so it's 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 not it doesn't come natural. So so it, it's it's a big problem. It is a big problem. You're, you're um, and so what happens because life is sort of like a game, you know, and we live in America, so the game is capitalism and the winner is, I guess, the person who hoards the most and has the most money, you know, is kind of wins the, the capitalist game. And, and because people want to feel like they've won or they've done something good at the end of the day, if you take away the meaning, the spiritual meaning of their work, then all they have left is just the more superficial meaning, Right. I mean, if I can't have joy and love with my patients or really heal them, maybe I can at least rake it in financially, you know? You have to feel good about something, right, at the end of the day. Sure. So I think it is definitely a compensatory behavior that is developed in somebody who's lost personal meaning in their life. 
Because at the end of their life, when you ask somebody, really, you know, was it all worth it, what do they say? Oh, they would rather have made less and spent more time with their family or had more joy and love, right? I mean, when it comes down to it, people really want the non-monetary things. But um, unfortunately, people don't realize that until too late. They don't realize they've sold their soul. A, a number Does that make sense? Of, yes, yes, it yeah. does. It, but, but so we come back to the issue, which is we, we're still in a crisis mode. And if you are a physician, you're facing some very difficult challenges and some tough decisions. Some physicians have gone and decided that they're going to cut back their practice. The, the number of patients that they see on an annual basis. And in order to do that, they're going to charge a membership fee, as it were. You pay a certain amount of money, and this gives you access to your doctor, cell phone, email, and an, an appointment within 24 hours, as opposed to I tried to make an appointment with a physician that took me two and a half months. And uh, by the time I got to the physician's office, they informed me that they were really sorry, but it was not possible to meet the physician before hiring the services of the physician. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's horrible that that happened to you, but it's very common that people have to wait months and months for a doctor. And, um, and yeah, more and more physicians are trying these, what you would call... Uh, relationship-driven practices. I think looking at medical practices as, as either relationship-driven or production-driven is a really good term to use because not everyone is doing this concierge or boutique practice with the extra fee. Like, for example, I don't charge an extra fee, but I sometimes call it I do VIP without the fee. And there are other people who are doing, like, direct primary care practices where patients pay, like, you know, 50 bucks a month or some modest amount, you know, per appointment, $50 per appointment, and, um, and they really cater to, you know, the middle class and but of course you know hey with enough money you could buy <laughs> you could get VIP so I think there's one it started in Seattle actually I think they charged families $25,000 a year to physicians in Seattle and they did everything from flying overseas with you to you know giving you plush robes when you showed up at their appointment and doing you know kind of every test known to man to clear you of every disease so um yeah i mean there's all sorts of uh combinations of of uh, services available in different styles among physicians. It's just this big box clinic assembly line mentality is not going to work long term, I think, for Americans. What Especially can... as people demand more. You know, like the whole idea with the waiting room and the waiting time. I think this is the reason that you had contacted me early on is that I reported on a story of a, a patient who actually decided to bill her doctor for her waiting room time. And she billed at her hourly rate of $47 per hour and her doctor paid it. And so this goes to the question that I was about to ask. It says, okay, so what can patients do to fight back, to take back ownership of their access to a physician and to quality care? And you're saying one of the things is let the doctors know that it's not acceptable to leave them waiting in their offices, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Give them feedback. Let them know that you feel disrespected or treated, you know, with um, – you know, in an inhumane manner and you're seeking health care. And so, you know, money talks in a, in a capitalist society. So bill at your hourly rate for your wasted time. I think that's excellent. If you can imagine everyone doing that tomorrow, we would have, we would have health care reform in 24 hours. You know, what the government has put in place and called health care reform is really health insurance reform. They're trying to regulate for-profit insurance companies as well as they can and at the same time funneling everyone into a forced uh, payment, you know, with subsidies if necessary. You know, they have to participate in for-profit insurance or get a penalty. So, but that's all, you know, health insurance. When it gets right down to it, how you want to be treated as a human being with your doctor and what type of care you want, that's something that we're going to need to do at the local level and it's by speaking up and not putting up with substandard treatment as a human being you should not feel disrespected before you even get in the office with your doctor and then money talks again if you don't like the clinic you're going there to seek 
their help with your medical problem, if they're not being helpful, if their clinic is running away that makes you anxious just dealing with the phone tree or just dealing with their waiting room, then do not go to that clinic. I mean, if a clinic lost a certain number of patients from poor service, they would have to either go out of business or raise the bar on their behavior. We should be servicing uh, physicians' offices who value patients, who treat patients with respect. Maybe some of those physicians are the physicians that charge an additional fee. Maybe that additional fee is worth it. You know, maybe you'll find other physicians like myself who don't charge the additional fee but really run a practice that is essentially designed by the patients. So what you're looking for is, I would say, a patient-centered practice, not a physician-centric practice, and definitely not a practice that's run by third parties, that services third parties' needs above the patients and physicians. That's a that's a that's a lose lose situation. <laughs> what is the difference between a DO and an MD? A DO is a doctor of osteopathy. A DO and an MD are basically the same in that we go through the same training, except doctors of osteopathy have more training regarding the musculoskeletal system, and they can do manipulation treatments. You know, uh, they're probably a cross between a chiropractor and an MD, but they're, you know, I would say that the quickest way to look at this is just call them 95% MD, 5% chiropractor. That's how I would look at a doctor of osteopathy. When we talked about 750,000 physicians in the United States today, did that figure include DO physicians? Yes, it did include DO physicians. And the way we can inflate that number, actually, that I learned in my town hall meetings, is to listen to what patients want. And patients really would like an integrated team of people, and they're not talking about specialists. They're talking about having their massage therapist, their counselor, you know, yoga, having all these other services available that would create a healthy life for them, and that they would use the doctor less often if they were if they were able to have access to all these other healing services and healing arts professionals so that's why i opened my practice in a wellness center so people can actually learn techniques that would keep them healthy so that they would utilize my services hope, hopefully less often is that what you call the ideal medical care movement pamela would you tell us about that Well, the ideal medical care movement is based on the notion that every American can have ideal medical care. So what is ideal medical care? It is not one size fits all. Ideal medical care is actually designed and defined by the patients. So in any community of patients, if they were to come together and be asked the simple question, design an ideal clinic or what is ideal care and they were not led down a multiple choice list of questions they were actually just given the time to write all their you know qualitative data all their you know dreams and hopes and aspirations for medical care down and a doctor like myself were to come and read all their testimony we would realize that what people want is really very simple they want a humanized healthcare model. They want to, like I mentioned before, walk into a clinic that would feel like walking into your best friend's living room. They would want to sit on the couch or next to their doctor, you know, in a, in a joining in a chair, you know, a comfortable chair with pillows, <laughs> and feel like their do- their best friend was kind of like their doctor. You know, that really comfortable down-home feeling where you're not staring at scary instruments, you're not waiting two months for an appointment, you're not sitting in a waiting room forever, you're actually with somebody who values you as much as your best friend. And so that's what ideal care is in Eugene, Oregon. The number two issue that was brought up in these meetings was an integrative system. And this is these are usually the first two things that are brought up in any community. And so integrative, like I said, meaning holistic health, massage, you know, 
chiropractic, having, you know, your, your counselor down the hall, having an assortment of people that are there to help build health. And um, I think any community would define ideal care pro- with those two items as close to the top as possible. But some communities might want other things. You know, an ideal clinic in Manhattan might be a little bit different than an ideal clinic in the middle of North Dakota or the middle of Oregon. And so that's the beauty of this movement is that communities are coming together and they are actually designing health care models that work for them, that are in alignment with their values as people. Like, for example, I go to work every day in Levi's jeans and clogs. Why do I do that? Well, that's how my patients dress. I dress like my patients. My patients want me to dress like a normal person. They don't want me in a white coat. They don't want to call me they can if they want. They can call me Dr. Weibel if they prefer, but most of them call me Pamela. And so that creates the partnership model. That creates a situation where you're at the same level with your doctor. You're dressed the same. You're at eye level with each other, at heart level with each other. They're not sitting up and I'm sitting down or I'm standing up and they're sitting down. We're at the same level, even down to the clothing. And what's so funny sometimes <laughs> I've had a patient come in and they're wearing the exact same colors. They're matching my outfit. I mean, it's just very funny what can happen when you decide to connect with your patients. And that's what people want. And from what I'm hearing you describe, you've achieved this, at least in part, in your practice. Is that right? Oh, that's correct. Yes, this is the first clinic in the entire country that was designed completely by patients as an ideal medical clinic because that's a question that's really rarely asked whenever there's a problem like say with healthcare you know what do they do put together a think tank and politicians get together and they sit and they talk about here's the problem what are we going to do right and they brainstorm solutions to a problem very rarely do we get together and just talk about wow what would be the ideal if we could create anything together, what's possible? That's the kind of meeting we need to have, and we need to have the end user, the patient, the consumer, whatever you want to call, you know, the, the client. You need to have them designing the models that work for them because, let's just face it, healthcare is a service. If you're going to provide a good service, you need to know what services your patients want to receive. You don't want to just hold them hostage to services that you think they should get, right? So, Absolutely. Are, yeah, the patients are in charge. Put the patients in charge. And that, that, that actually takes the pressure off the doctor because, wow, we've been in charge way too long. You know, and you don't want to give away your power to third parties because, let's face it, they're just there for the money. Third parties are involved in health care for how much they could make. They're not in it for the long-term health of the doctors or doctors wouldn't be committing suicide. They're not in it for the long-term care of the patients because most insurance companies are only covering a month's prescription at a time because who knows what insurance company they'll sign up with next month. You know what I'm saying? Nobody has a real long-range ideal plan except for the patient and the physician who want to have an ideal long-range relationship with each other. And they're the ones that should be in charge, and the patient should be number one, and the physician should be number two. And I actually found it really relaxing and just so easy to put the patients in charge because in the average appointment, most of the time, the physician arrives with an agenda that's completely different than the patient. And so what you have going on, and you may have felt this way at a doctor's appointment, is you have an invisible tug of war going on where the patient is trying to get certain things that the doctor doesn't want to deliver or can't deliver or the insurance plan says they shouldn't give, right? And then the doctor's trying to force a patient onto an algorithm that they don't even understand that they don't want to get on, right? So you have these two very different agendas. And it makes so much more sense when you put the patients in charge of designing their ideal clinic because now guess what? You work for them. I work for my patients. My patients wrote my job description for me. I work for them. I still take insurance and all that, but I do all the administrative stuff at another physical, another at my home business office where I see patients. It's just me and the patient. No interruptions, no other staff, no phones beeping, no, no uh, fax machines buzzing. Nothing can disturb me, and I, I'm just there with my patient for 30 to 60 minutes. 
and I am able to connect with them. And during that time, I can deliver exactly what they need and I don't feel like we're struggling because I'm delivering health care to them in the, in the middle of Oregon in a physical location that appeals to them because they designed it down to the color of the, of the furniture and the type of furniture. They designed it. I am delivering, I, I'm showing up in an outfit that makes them comfortable. You know, I look like a normal, fun, relaxed Oregon person. <laughs> and it's just, uh, it's just work. When you interact with the outside world, I'm going to call it, meaning beyond the interaction that you have with individual patients, you may have to refer those patients to specialists or there may be the need for a a diagnostic procedure or a surgical procedure. They may have to go to a hospital or a clinic. What happens then? Because you certainly are separate in your approach in your pricing in every way from what others are doing, how does this work with the interaction? No, it works fine just as well as it would work any other way. Specialists are hungry for patients, whether they don't care where they're coming from. <laughs> they could be coming from my office or coming from a multi-specialty group or coming from out of town. If, you're, if you need something done by a specialist, um, they're, they're, we have an oversupply of specialists compared to, you know, the primary care physicians, so uh, specialists are really thankful <laughs> for receiving patients. And as far as you did mention my pricing structure being different, it's not really that different. I charge the standard prices that any other doctor charges in town. It's just that I'm transparent with them, and I give a 30% discount for patients who pay at the time of service, so that makes it very affordable for people. And I also do barter and trades, and I don't turn anyone away for lack of money. And it's just, it works really well. And financially, I could make twice as much money as I could working uh, full-time at one of those um, corporate jobs, just being uh, self-employed and part-time because I've removed the middleman. So you're spending quality time, you said 30 to 60 minutes with your patients, Mm -hmm. you're being transparent, and you're making twice as much as you would if you were working for a corporation. I'm not currently making twice as much because I'm not really a money-driven person, but I've trained other doctors to open similar offices, and they are making twice as much as they could make as their other, you know, at least one and a half times as much, depending on what they were getting before. And I, in my first year, saw this trend that when I got my overhead down around 10% instead of 74%, you do have a lot more income at the end of the year when you have overhead that's that low. Is this happening in other parts of the country, in other parts of your state? Are other practices emulating you? Yes, all around the country this is happening. In fact, just an hour down the road in Salem, Oregon, the capital, another physician is currently leading town hall meetings, and she's opening a clinic designed by her community in about two weeks. And physicians in other parts of the country have contacted me, and I've helped them, you know, do similar sorts of things. It's just in medical school we don't really learn business skills, nor do we learn community organizing skills. And I'm really a community organizer slash physician, and I would say those are, you know, and, uh, you know, I love actually, you know, writing as well, but I would say being a community organizer and a physician and a business person, these are, these are all things that um, medical school doesn't really make it easy to be successful as an entrepreneurial physician. So I have retreats that I lead for physicians, and um, they can come on scholarship. A lot of medical students can come for free, and I teach them all these skills and how to lead town hall meetings. And if anyone wants to find a clinic in their part of the country that's similar to this, they can go to idealmedicalcare.org, which is my website. And if you click on Ideal Clinics, there's a little tab, Find One Near You, and you can see a map of the entire United States, and you can find similar doctors around the country. What suggestions would you share with our listeners, Pamela, that they can take back, whether they're physicians or whether they are patients who want to find this ideal medical care movement approach so that they can have better quality care and a closer relationship with their physician? What would you say to them? Well, I would first 
recognize that the physician, your relationship with the physician is the most important relationship of your life, even beyond your relationship with your spouse, because think about who can control your destiny more than your physician. I mean, your physician will have a long relationship with your physician if you value that relationship and you pick the right physician. You could have a relationship that, you know, lasts your generation and into your kids and into your grandkids. You know, you could have a physician that knows your family for multiple generations. Physicians can, you know, literally write a prescription that will kill you or save your life. And this is somebody that you should value and not just pick randomly out of a list of uh, doctors provided by your insurance company, which many people do, just kind of randomly pick a doctor from a list. So I would first encourage people to take this relationship very seriously and to demand that this relationship meet your expectations. And you will find that you can have fun going to the doctor. You can have an educational experience. You can ask as many questions as you want. You can actually experience joy. And what most people secretly want to experience from their doctor is healing. If you have a relationship with your doctor, you are much more likely to experience a healing session because healing happens in the emotional and spiritual realm as well as the physical. So so I, I would just I think part of this is just having insight that you as a patient are de, are you deserve this. And physicians having the insight that they deserve to be happy. And that if they're not happy or if they're victims in their jobs, they're actually in in a sense teaching their patients to be victims. We role model for each other. We're mirrors for each other. So I would ask people to get into these healthy relationships, especially with their doctor and with themselves. Learn how to be human again. I'm looking at the map that you mentioned, and there are a lot of little red Google dots on there. How many, off the top of your head, would you say how many physicians are following this approach that we've discussed? Well, this relationship-driven model that would be called ideal medical care, maybe 200 physicians might be on that map, but there's probably hundreds more. It's just not everyone kind of puts themselves on the map. (laughs) I think if you're looking for a doctor that practices this way, you might want to start by calling independent doctors. About 13% of doctors are in solo practice, meaning they run the show. If something is not right with their office, they can change it tomorrow. They don't have to go to a gazillion committee meetings. If you want to have a direct relationship with your doctor, you may be more likely to have that relationship at an independent practice or a smaller practice versus one that's owned by large organizations that have you know, layers and layers of rules and everyone has to be sort of a cookie-cutter doctor you know, to kind of keep the uh, – you know, they have a standard way they want everyone to, to act, and they all have to match. You know, kind of like going to McDonald's, which would be kind of the same in every state, no matter where you go. If you're looking for, um, you know, a unique personality or a doctor that really can meet your needs and be like a real person, not just kind of a robot, you might find that more often in a smaller practice. So I would start there. Not everyone's on that map on my website. Where can they go if they want more information? You said idealmedicalcare.org is the website? Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyone can email me from there. I return all my email. You can call me. I'm willing to talk on the phone to anyone and share whatever information that would help you. Uh, either find a really great doctor in your part of the country or open your own community clinic in your neighborhood. I help doctors lead town hall meetings and communities lead town hall meetings all over the country. So let me know if this is something that appeals to you. I've also helped hospital systems uh, redesign their themselves, you know, re, reinvent themselves <laughs> as um, community, truly community-designed hospitals that were, uh, were designed by the citizens who, who use the services. You had said that you had some books available. Did you want to offer copies? Oh, sure. If anyone is interested in Pet Goats and Pap Smears, that's a book that shares what the potential 
of uh, you know what healthcare would look like for you um, if we had a healthcare system that really valued this relationship. These are my best 101 stories from 20 years of medical practice. They're very funny. They're one to three pages each with cartoon drawings in each one. So really easy to read, and uh, kids as young as 13 have learned a lot from reading the book and have enjoyed it. But uh, physicians love it, and patients really, after reading the book, they learn how to demand what they need from their doctor, but in a compassionate and loving way. It just, you know, raises the bar on our expectations from healthcare and what you can actually get tomorrow at the doctor's office. It's not like waiting for legislation. This is the kind of care you can get right away. You just have to know it's possible. So petgoatsandpapsmears.com if somebody wants to email me from there. I'm happy to, to give some free books away and to answer your emails and go ahead and get in touch with me. Let's let's limit that number of books so this doesn't get carried away. Say the first three people that respond or All right, the first three people that respond will get a free book. <laughs> yeah, and so I'll mail that anywhere in the continental United States. I have mailed a free one to Australia but it cost me like twenty dollars. <laughs> So you've learned to narrow the geographic scope. I'm going to narrow it down to the continent, well, to the United States, you know, all 50 states. I'll take anyone from Alaska to Hawaii to the U.S. for the free book. Thank you, Pamela, for joining us from Eugene, Oregon. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Pamela Weibel, MD, who is author of Pet Goats and Pap Smears, who discussed ideal medical care. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com. 